TG Geeks, episode 137, October 2nd, 2017. The past and the present collide in a song. Hello and welcome to another webcast from TGGeeks.com, where Ben and Keith, the two gay geeks, talk about all aspects of geekdom and nerdery, sci-fi, comics, film, horror, genre, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Keith Lane and we're coming to you from TG Squared Studios in lovely Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm Ben Raginton, also coming to you from lovely Swayback, Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> Yeah, we got an interesting interview for you today, and we'll just launch right into that interview, and we'll talk a little bit about it afterwards. And this time on the show, we have Ari Gold, director of the new and exciting film Song of Sway Lake. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah. So for our listeners, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, background of who Ari Gold is and kind of how you got into filmmaking, just in a kind of little brief, and then we'll have a few other questions well, for you. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've made a bunch of short films after discovering that as well as a writer as a kid, I wanted to be a writer, and I realized I hated being alone so much. And so I started making short films, and um, they toured to festivals and um, Sundance and took me various countries, and I realized, okay, I guess I'm making movies now. And, um, and then it's been a long, a long road to hoe getting independent films made. I've made two feature films. Um, one's called Adventures of Power, and that's a, the epic tale of, a, of an air drummer trying to... Uh, save his small town by air drumming and yes that is really the plot of the movie um and uh then in a very different vein my new film the song of sway lake is about um a lost piece of music from the 1940s that haunts the family and um several different generations of the family are trying to find this song they think will save their souls and uh um it's a sun dappled romantic drama so i have a um, Everything from air drumming comedy to uh, to intergenerational love stories. <laughs> Inter yeah, I, I would say that's important. Intergenerational comedy, love story, yes. <laughs> yes, well, you've seen the movie, I guess. Have you seen the movie? Yes, yes we did. Yes, we, we okay. finally yes, had so an opportunity. You know that there's a 75-year-old woman who uh, bewitches a um, young and frequently naked Russian Man, well, who bewitches whom? Yeah, who, well, <laughs> I, I guess he well, is <laughs> bewitched, and you know, maybe unintentionally. <laughs> I, I think he was kind of bewitching her as well. <laughs> yeah, there was a mutual bewitchment happening. Yes, um, and frequently but, uh, naked. Yes, he is a very pretty they man. Both, they oh, yeah. both um, are nude in the movie. Yes, her her nudity is not as um, flagrant as his, but yes. um, I do have um, a moment of the uh, the woman in her seventies uh, bearing all for the camera. And, yeah. Uh, 
So I dig it. How how was that? Um, that that was interesting because uh, oh gosh, the, the actor that played uh, Nikolai uh, Robert Sheehan. Robert Sheehan. Uh, how did he react to uh, the frequent nudity? I, he he appeared very comfortable being nude. So. Um, <laughs> Saying he reacted to the frequent nudity doesn't capture the essence of his personality. It's hard to get him to put his clothes on. I see. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> that, that was that's kind of what I I. He was so comfortable in the film being nude that I, I suspected that he didn't. It didn't take any convincing to get him out of his clothes. <laughs> no, no, quite the contrary. <laughs> Keep um, your clothes and, on. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he would, you know, he would do push-ups right before the nude scenes so that he, you know, looked as good as possible. Right, but, right. Um, mm. you know, other than that, um, it was all all natural. Yeah. Well, he's actually, Robert Sheehan, this is a, a, a nice thing for us. He's starring in Peter Jackson's new, you know, multi-gazillion dollar movie that's um, been shooting in New Zealand. So. Oh, that's cool. Next, next year, he may be... Uh, you know the big star the big star that he has been in his mind probably since he was three years old and then wow. he can and we say, all think of him that way too yeah and then he can say well we had him when yeah yes so yeah, um exactly. I, I noticed that he is actually irish i, I his accent was very good for uh put, the, putting on yeah, a russian accent there's an interesting casting process to cast a russian you know the, the character of nikolai and we're Help help the audience along. Uh, the story is Rory Culkin plays a young and depressed dude who um, is going up to his family's lake house to try to find and steal this record from the 40s that he thinks he should have inherited. Right. Um, and he brings along his friend, who's this bombastic Russian dude who he has not known for very long. Um, and they sort of became instant friends, but they're very different. Nikolai is... Um, Kind of wild and unhinged, and uh, Ollie Sway, who's the you know inheritor, of, wannabe inheritor of this estate, um, is kind of depressed and dark and quiet. Um, and so this odd couple is, you know, heading up to the mountains to to this uh, mysterious lake house to find this song, this lost song. Um, and uh, I needed to have this Russian character be both charismatic, um, you know, sexually attractive um, to all of the women on the lake, including the 70-year-olds, um, but also have this kind of unhinged humor about him. And um, I auditioned a lot of people, you know, uh, not just Russians, but Americans, Irish, Dutch actors. I mean, I auditioned all over the place to try to find somebody who had all of those qualities um, because the character was based on, in some sense, on somebody who I know who is a bombastic Russian dude who kind <laughs> of, it, he seems to be always exaggerating um, his flair for life. Like, you're like, are you... It's, are you for real? Are you are you actually turning up your Russian accent? Are you turning it all up to kind of charm people? Right. And there's always that question about this real guy. And Robert Sheehan, though he's Irish, he's not Russian, he had that flavor. Right. He understood that kind of um, 
over the topness and um, even the the guy who I based the character on, who's a, a director, a Russian director, you know, he watched through all the tapes and he was like, yeah, this is the guy who actually has my, you know, my spirit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it was a risky move because then, you know, some people of course will be like, why didn't you cast a Russian? Um, and, uh, you know, Robbie was the best, the best guy for it. He was the one who, who kind of got it. Um, right. So, um, you know, and you his, have, to, you have to have all the pieces there. Propensity for nudity helped. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know about that. That was an additional <laughs> icing on the cake. Was that we get on set, it's like, okay, we're going to have to do a closed set and have all this tension around. Okay, the actor's going to take off his clothes. Everyone's going to be nervous. And he's Instead, taking his shirt like, off oh, while you're saying wal- that. Waltzing up. <laughs> There's a scene later where he um, is going to sabotage the. Um, uh, the, the character has uh, been kind of quietly listening to the, um, the matriarch um, complaining about noise on the lake. And so he wants to sabotage the uh, jet skis, the jet ski business across the lake. And this is the scene that's kind of later in the movie. And when he is swimming to this um, boathouse to sabotage the jet skis, you know, he has to strip again. And he had stripped naked so many times <laughs> until that point. I was like, you know what? Maybe in this one, you just keep your underwear on. Well, I, I thought that was kind of unusual. <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of out of context there a little bit. Yeah, it, was, it just seemed like we, like how much nudity do we want? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it and I of, thought his underwear looked kind of funny in that scene. So anyway, we yeah. kept the underwear on just that once. Yeah, I thought it was um, interesting but, uh, in that scene. You noticed the underwear. Yeah, that you were to, waiting for the underwear to come off. <laughs> yeah, I was actually. Well, you just but, expect some. You expect a certain normality out of the character, a certain sense of con- uh, of continuity and consistency with everything that he's doing. And up to this point, it's like, okay, naked, 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 not so naked. Yeah. So it, yeah, I I, I, well, I think it worked with the story though because he's trying to really go about this in a. a, a concealed way shall we say and that that's his costume or his disguise his underwear yeah wow this is my secret identity yeah he won't recognize me clark ken has his glasses i've got my underwear yeah Yeah. so the i i thought the story was very uh, the music was incredible yeah and it is that's this one thing that we uh, well there are several things that we really uh, identified heavily with the film and I want to I want to kind of take a step back and say uh, where did this story come from from a creative standpoint? Well, like all stories, it's a little hard to know exactly where the genesis is. Um, I in this case there were characters that inspired most of the characters. In the movie, um, you know, the Russian, as I said, was inspired by this Russian friend of mine who has that over-the-top quality and in real life did have a kind of um, uh, kind of obsession is too strong over word, but he, when he met my own grandmother, had a kind of, there was a bit of a bewitched quality where he thought she was kind of a perfect representation of of the America that as a kid he uh, looked for. And then when he got to America, he didn't find it. He didn't find this kind of like movie star America. And my grandmother had a bit of that quality. 
So that pairing uh, was inspired by something in real life. Now, nothing of that pairing in real life happens in the movie, but the kind of the possibility for a young Russian and an old American woman to have a kind of mutual admiration came from that. Um, and then, you know, as a kid, I would go up to the Adirondacks, which is the mountain region um, close to the Canadian border, north New York State, um, and um, it's a beautiful giant wilderness with towns in it that has a history going back in terms of sort of American development into the 1800s where first it was hunters and trappers kind of taking over from the Native Americans who, was, who were there and then it became kind of like a vacation land for the rich and the history of this region has a quality of kind of lost glamour right. and there was several eras of it you know like the 1890s when people would go up and you know go for their tuberculosis cure up there and then um, you know various um, decades in you know before jet travel became so common um, were kind of flare-ups of glamour up in the Adirondacks and it's still gorgeous but it's not glamorous per se and, right. and kind of the shadow of that glamour for me felt like a good um, metaphor for kind of the shadow of the glamour of the jazz era and the shadow of the kind of heroic grace of America coming out of World War II where America could do no wrong and we, we were the heroes of the world and um, and that's all gone now you know we don't have that kind of grace or pride anymore right. and um so to have three characters who are kind of longing for that you have a russian who grew up you know in the communist era and because the movie takes place just after the fall of the soviet union so he grew up kind of wanting to be in america and so he has this idea of what america should be then you have the grandmother who remembers it and wants to go back to that time and then you have the young grandson who um, grown, has grown up feeling that he could never live up to how great things supposedly were. And he, so he hates the past because it, it's just been this, um, you know, curse of uh, being something that he couldn't live up to. So these three characters are all kind of stuck with this unhealthy relationship of the past. And the mountains represent that. The music you know, the 1930s, 1940s jazz era music represents that. And it's all this kind of like unreachable um, past that's like a dream that you've just woken up from when you're trying to go back into it and you can't. Right. And that's what the movie's mm -hmm. about. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they're, they, all three of, of the principal, well, actually, including the maid, they're all kind of outcasts in their own way. Uh, yeah, sort of, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, the the grandmother is only an outcast because she's still hanging on to the past, and she's she has become the old matriarch. And you know, uh, I think the the telling line was "Your Lake," and <laughs> when she yeah. said "Our Lake," so it it, it yeah, kind the, of, the the local townspeople kind of are jeering her for, um, you know, holding on to this idea that it was. Right. Once her family's private property, and now it's you know getting chipped away at by 
motorboats and jet skis and right. you know, locals who are trying to make a living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, as I was saying, the the music was incredible. I I thought the the music Thank that you. you chose for that was absolutely wonderful. And I noticed all the credits go by. It's like, oh my God, he must have paid a fortune for for the rights to well, hear these songs. You know, I paid I paid a fortune in time primarily. Um, I had thousands of songs that I went through from the area was my own collection and then digging deeper. And I cut the movie several times with several different sets of songs and I would use songs and then find that I couldn't get the right to the music and I would have to look for something else. And um, I went through so many layers of rejection where I couldn't afford um, pieces of music. And what was interesting is, my previous film is also a very music-heavy film. It's a completely different tone, but it's also about music. It's about an air drummer, and uh, he is obsessed with music like Rush and you know Judas Priest. And with that movie, people watch it and they say, "How did you get these songs? Because they're you know they're famous songs and you know them, and they're big rock songs. And it was easier in a way because the uh, musicians were alive, so I could." Right. bypass the record companies, go to the the managers or eventually get, you know, my, a letter into the artist and say, I'm making this movie. It's about, you know, the human spirit, but it, the metaphor for it is air drumming. And, you know, and I would write these fun letters and they would give me the rights for a very good rate um, oh, wow. and tell the record companies that they had to kind of follow suit. Uh, but when you have a song from 1923, yeah, you know, it's only the corporation that you're dealing with, right? Um, and in in many cases, a whole bunch of corporations. You know, one, you know, the songwriting might be owned by four different um, rights groups, and the recording owned by another two different rights groups. You're dealing with six different entities. None of them have an emotional interest in you using the song. They're just like send us a check, right? So and they all want a check. Um, <laughs> what'd you say? I say, and they all want a check. They all want to check, yeah. So um, it was really hard to um, get the music that I initially wanted. And then, um, you know, it was a long, long, I mean, it was actually a several-year process as I was cutting the movie together. And I would, because I'm a musician um, and I care a lot about music, um, if I changed song, I would usually want to recut the scene, even if the song is just playing on the turntable in the background, because the feeling of every song is different, and it made me feel each scene differently. And right. um, it's sort of obsessive, and you know, I know there's a lot of directors who would just slap on something else, and that's probably the same thing to do, but um, I wanted the lyrics, if there were lyrics, or the singing, or the trumpet, or the drums, or whatever that's playing on the turntable in the background to complement what's happening in the scene. Right. And so I was always recutting based on what I could get or not get. And, um, so, uh, you know, so that's, that's how the soundtrack. Ultimately everything in there I believed in, but I had to dig really deep because it wasn't the, it wasn't the hit songs for the most part that I, from the, you know, thirties that are in there. It's, right. um, there are some known songs, but some are like the deeper cuts. Right. Personally, I think that was a really great idea. I mean, there's the lazy man's way of just, as you said, you just slap a song on the turntable and kind of let it go. 
but I think your your passion and you, you called it your obsession of, of getting the the music to completely marry with the scene in that manner. I mean, it's it's like one is informing the other, and that's what helped I think make the the soundtrack to this entire film really stand out in in, in an enormously powerful way, more so than anything I'd ever expected. I mean, that's that that was yeah. one of the big takeaways that we kept talking about. Uh, while we were watching the movie and ad- and after the movie was over, we just kept saying, you know, the music in this film was just so unbelievably amazing. And it's because it is that perfect marriage between what it is. Well, you can't have a, yeah, you can't have a movie about um, people who are obsessed with old 78 speed records and just be lazy I, <laughs> about the music you choose. You know, for me, it was, you know, I can't tell you how many nights I spent up all night in a state of panic because I was getting forced to replace a song with a certain tempo and feeling with something from like, you know, there are these music libraries where you can get songs for cheap, song rights for cheap. And, you know, I'd listen to like imitations of, of music from the 1940s, you know, and there are thousands of these songs and I'd listen to all of them trying to find one that had the right flavor. And it was just horrifying to me. I just didn't want to have anything in there that didn't really sing both in terms of authenticity and in terms of the motion for the scene that was being put on, even though the characters are just putting on music. And from their point of view, they're just throwing the needle on the turntable. But from the point of the audience, that's their guide. That's right. their guide into what's happening emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was great. I, I enjoyed music from that era, too. And all of the music was was really great. Mm-hmm. And and. The other thing was that it's a beautifully shot oh, film. The, oh my yes, god! Yes, the, the cinematography in this movie is, just, is stunning. Especially the outdoor scenes and the, the the nature scenes are absolutely incredible. The, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, all of these things—the the way it sounds, the way it looks—you know, in some sense, like you can't in a movie go to this lake. You can't go to Sway Lake. Sway Lake doesn't exist in real life. Right. You, right. Um, but watching it, you certainly can't even go to the region where it was shot. I wanted the photography and the music to give you the ability to smell what you can't smell on the screen. So, um, you know, like also working with the sound designer, like every cricket that's in the movie, every sound that you hear when you go outside is um, augmented just in a, a subtle enough way that it can make for the fact that you can't smell the screen. Right. I know it sounds weird, but I kept saying to the sound guy I was working with, I was like, I, I want to smell this forest. Right. We have to, you know, we have to look for some more, uh, you know, maybe there's a woodpecker we can add in this one thing. And like, you know, hopefully watching it, you're not thinking about all these things, but you're just, you end up feeling it because of that. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, because Sway Lake is so, much of a shadow over the characters, it has to have that impact on the audience. Right. And it, it, I noticed that you caught a deer, <laughs> kind of deer oh, in the headlights there. Oh, that was a there. beautiful and, shot. And the squirrel, and I mean, just all these little things. And it, it just, it really, it adds to that whole nature and being. I, I really felt like I was in the Adirondacks when you were, when I was watching the film. It was, it was incredible. Just the oh, it's great. You know, did did you use a great. drone or a helicopter for some of the aerial scenes? Neither. We used a seaplane. Really? Far out. Wow. It's a movie about the past. True. It's a movie about the old days. So, yeah, we there, there's a guy who um, 
has a place on the other side of the lake, uh, a long beard that comes to his belly button. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and uh, he actually, his family runs the uh, motorboat shop where we shot the motorboat scenes. And there's a, a couple brothers, and one of them also um, has a seaplane. Um, so we always had a kind of call out if the weather was suitable and the wind wasn't too crazy, you know, to send one of our camera people you know, rushing down the street to <laughs> yeah. knock on his door and see if um, she could ride around and you know, photograph the lake from, from the sky. Wow. So, well, uh, it, that really helped the, the film. It, it was incredible. Well, you know, just all of all of that. Well, was... you can't have this story without, as you said, you know, the, the setting is also part of the story itself in, in what it represents and the world that some of these people are trying to recapture or live in or, or run away from. So yeah, you have to have that detailed um, land, you know, all that land and, and to be able to, to really appreciate it and to, to almost be immersive for the viewer. I well, would... exactly. I mean, that's the thing is I, I want people to feel like uh, they were there and uh, when the movie ends, they're kind of woke up, wake up and they're like, wait, how do I get back there? So they get that feeling. And then, you know, the music, basically photography and the music were a tool to do that. Um, I mean, one of the big challenges with the music too, is that working with my identical twin, who I'm very close with, he was the one who actually suggested that we create, that we didn't just use music from the era, but that we create um, for this song that they're looking for from 1940 that no one's ever heard. He said, why, why use an obscure track that actually exists? Why not actually create something that no one has ever heard? And I was terrified because I initially wrote it to uh, use a, a piece of music that I loved from 1940. And he said, no, let's create something from scratch. And um, I was so scared that people would watch the movie and say, oh, this is a modern song. This isn't this isn't the real deal because I listened to so many thousands of songs that were, you know, in these libraries that were attempts to sound like a period and none of them sound authentic. They all just sound like BS. Um, and so my brother, who is a rock mu musician was like, I want to write a jazz song from 1940 about Sway Lake. So it'll be the song of Sway Lake, which is the title of the movie. Um, and the audience is going to have to believe that when they finally find it and play it, that it's real, that it really comes from 1940. And um, I'm so pleased that after all that stress and work that we actually um, seem to have pulled it off when, you know, I've screened it at festivals and um, audiences will raise their hand and say, you know, how did you find that Sway Lake song? Right. <laughs> we didn't find it. We made it. Um, Having that revelation, and, uh, the way it comes in when we finally do get the song, and it's such a perfect spot in the film, so that there's almost this enormous sense of relief. Uh, so I, I think that might be part of it. But at the same time, the fact that you were able to recapture that, just it almost it, it almost creates like a, a denouement, or, or the, the, there's, there's some sort of a, a crowning achievement in the, the reveal of that song. Of that song, yeah. 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 It, it, well, the it guy just... who sang it, um, John Grant, I don't know if you know his music. Do you know John Grant at no, all? No, Fred, we don't. Uh, well, check him out. He's a brilliant singer, songwriter, um, who is he's American, actually, but he's a huge star in Europe, not 
really known in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, he sold out the Royal Albert Hall in London last year. Um, and uh, he is, um, in addition to his many talents, he's also loves learning languages. Uh, he's been teaching himself Icelandic, for example, which is an incredibly hard language. Um, and uh, he was involved in a love relationship with a, a, a guy in, in Reykjavik. And so that what motivated it initially. Uh-huh. But then, you know, unlike most people moving there for love and sticking with English, he started actually really teaching himself Icelandic. So, uh, but so he has that ability to hear something and try to understand its language. And one of the challenges when uh, my brother wrote this song of Soy Lake and actually wrote 12 of them, 12 beautiful songs, we had to pick which one we were going to use. Um, and we ultimately picked the one that we felt the melodies would be usable as well as score. So most of the score that you hear in the movie leading up to the revelation of this song is using the same melodies of the song so that I wanted when you hear the song for it to feel subconsciously familiar. So the piano that plays is some trumpet. There are various things that are like you could plant in these melodies until, you know, the climax when you hear the song. Uh, but, uh, you know, when my brother sang it in demo form, it sounded like to me, like my brother, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we found John Grant, um, one of the things that was so amazing about him is that unlike a lot of other singers we had considered, um, he understood that he had to change his voice. He had to change the language with which he sang uh, because in, you know, the microphones were different in the thirties. Oh, absolutely. And so you had to, um, and, and so the place people put their voice when they sang was different. Um, people sing much more open and out now. At that period, it was coming out of, um, well, first, like the vaudeville tradition where people had to belt it out to the back of the audience, and then people who were trained in opera were also belting, and then these new microphones that were invented that allowed people to sing quietly. That's where the whole crooner thing came about, and that was, you know, people like Bing Crosby who were like, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to sing to the back of the audience. I can use this operatic training, the kind of warbly sound, but I can do it super quiet, Um, and... Then coming out of World War II, people like Sinatra, you know, opened up this kind of more brassy sound where their voice would imitate trumpet. Um, And the Andrews sisters also wanted to imitate trumpets. But there was this little window when people were singing really intimately. So it was like after vaudeville and, you know, opera and before the kind of Sinatra, Andrews sisters, brassy, big sound. And John Grant understood that that little window of a couple of years was the one that we wanted for this song. And he had to train his voice to sing like that. Um, To be honest, I I actually thought it was a Cole Porter song whenever I heard it. It did. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I bought it as being Cole Porter. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's one of the subplots of the movie is that um, the character who wrote this fictional song that, um, and sang this fictional song, was Cole Porter's lover, and he was up at Sway Lake, and he was there for the wedding. And it, I don't really go into it in the story, but the implication is that he had a little taste of the glamorous life and somehow was expelled from it and lost it all. And whether that was because of his relationship with Cole Porter, whether that was because of 
his race. I don't go into it, but there were various characters like this in the real history of jazz who, oh, yeah. I mean, a big one was Hutch, uh, Leslie Hutchinson, who was a black bisexual singer who um, kind of wowed audiences in New York. And then he fled because of, or left because of racism and went to London and he became the darling of English society um, and had affairs with, you know, apparently members of the royal family of both sexes <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> and then died with nothing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he just fell out of favor. Um, and so I wanted to have the shadow of that character be in the piece of music. Um, and so John Grant really approached it like an actor when he sang it. Um, and I directed him as an actor. And then my brother, Ethan Gold, who was the composer, then directed him in another take actually recorded him once in LA and my brother recorded him in Iceland. And then we combined the two in a sort of line by line to kind of create the best performance. Um, how did you get it? So, uh, hmm? How did you get him to be in your film? I mean, cause he, he's amazing. John Grant. Yes. Um, I mean, the same way you get any performer or actor, you, when you're not paying, you, know, you have to write a really good letter um, and you have to try to get through his people to get to him and offer something that they've never had a chance to do before. Um, I mean, the same thing with, you know, my first feature, Adventures of Power. Okay, so it's an air drummer comedy. And uh, Michael McKean, who, um, you know, rock movie fans all you know, worship at the altar of Spinal Tap. Oh, he was the and king, of the, king know, of the mockumentary. He's the lead singer in Spinal Tap. Right. right. So how did you get Michael McKean to be in your movie? The reason he, I think that he uh, said yes to me is because I wasn't saying, hey, I want you to play like a crazy, you know, rock and roller improvising in this air drummer comedy. I said, yes, I'm making an air drummer comedy, but I want you to play the father of the air drummer who disapproved of him and he's trying to run a uh, copper miners union that's getting busted by the copper mining plant. And he's in a state of war, um, you know, to save his union. That was interesting to him because he's never, you know, because at that point he had done so much of this great improvised, improvised comedy type movie, people thought of him as that, but I was saying, no, no, you're a great actor. Um, and, uh, uh, let me, you know, let me let you show your chops playing a union man. So same thing with John Grant. No one's ever come to him and said, hey, let's use your voice to um, play a long dead uh, fictional singer from 1940. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That's, a, that's a pretty cool opportunity if you're a cool guy. Um, well, was so, there something uh, in John, was there some quality in John Grant's voice that made you say, I really think this is the person to do it? Heartbreak. Uh, you know, you listen to his music and if, you know, you can't not be moved by his music. It's just so powerful. And, you know, he doesn't sing in the 1940s style in his own music, but he has, uh, there's a bigness to his voice that I suspected and my brother suspected would be convertible to um, this kind of different singing style of the 40s. But, you know, we didn't know for sure. Uh, and John actually was cool enough to kind of audition for us, which 
uh, we had con- considered some other singers, other famous singers, and you know the answer was always, you know, make an offer to my manager. Right. And it's like okay, well, I, you know, we're trying to make a song from 1940, and it's essential that the audience believe that it's real. Just like you have to believe Sway Lake is a real place, which people do when they see the movie. You have to believe the song of Sway Lake is a real song, um, and it's not something we made. And, um, you know, we didn't know. And so the fact that he was saying, okay, let, let me come in and give it a shot. And, you know, the we spent a couple hours. And, you know, at first he was doing things with his voice that weren't quite right. And I would say, hey, you know, that thing, that the you know, this the way you're entering this note is very modern. No one would do that at the time. And I'd play him a little piece of something from time to remind him. He, and he'd say, yeah, yeah, you're so right. You're so right. Hold on a second. And then he'd kind of go pace in a corner and, you know, hold his hand on his neck and, you know, kind of figure out where his voice needed to be. Wow. And um, the fact that he came in and kind of auditioned for us is the reason he got the part because – you know, my brother and I realized, oh, this guy can actually do it. And he's not just going to phone in something and sing in his own style and, and take everyone out of the movie. Because you're like, yeah, this is cool. This sounds kind of 1940s-ish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not what we wanted. We wanted it to be like, whoa, where did they get this song from 1940? Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when people see the movie. Yeah. Well, I wanna... uh, It really sounds like it comes from that. I, I want to say that you, you have... A few, I won't say huge names, but you have some names in the uh, other than Brian Dennehy. I mean, that's a huge name. But Mary Beth Peel and then Elizabeth Pena, which I I noticed at the end, and I had been, you know, I I live on on IMDb, and I hadn't noticed it until I saw the credits, and then I looked and I said, oh my God, she <laughs> she died before the film was actually released, and. Then when you said you've yeah. been cutting it for with different songs, well, it, that glad, made sense. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because the question, uh, my, my one of my final questions is, how long have you been working on this movie? <laughs> All of your way life. Way too long. <laughs> way too long. I mean, I'm slow. You know, I, I Robert Sheehan uh, gave me something to read at festivals that he is unable to attend, um, which says something like, when we shot this movie, we were younger and more svelte versions of ourselves um, because Ari takes his sweet-ass time finishing. <laughs> finishing but, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a, I think of it like a painting, and it's like well, I, I yeah. could just slap this on the wall. It's got to be perfect, I had to find and I out fully understand that. And, you know, the, the other thing is I, I also didn't quite understand why I had written it. Uh, I wrote it with uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine, so I'm not taking all the credit, but, you know, why I had brought this story to the screen. And it was really going, I mean, frankly, during, like, silent meditation retreat um, in Joshua Tree for three days that I actually figured out what the movie was about. Mm-hmm. Um, all this that I've said about the past and, the, you know, the way people have this on untenable relationship with the past. I didn't really understand that was the story of the movie until I was, you know, silent for 72 hours. And I saw this image of, um, a watch sinking in water. Um, and that now is the first shot of the movie. I, I, um, shot it way after I'd shot the movie and I realized it was this 
watch that plays in the movie and this idea of kind of frozen time being a, uh, a curse. Um, and so, um, you know, it was a long process for me to discover that. I knew that it was about friendship. I knew it was about this, you know, bewitchment between a 75 year old woman and a young man. And I knew it was about looking for love and letting, you know, letting death go, letting suicide, you know, there's a suicide in the past that letting that go. I knew all of these things, but I didn't understand really that it was about every single character in the movie has this um, different form of an unhealthy relationship with the past. Well, don't and, we all, though? We, we all have uh, a, a certain nostalgia for the past, and we reinvent history to make it more uh, well, palatable, the, 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 yeah, shall we well, say, there's something sometimes. rather pathological <laughs> about the way we look to our own past, be it personal or just uh, a general, uh, to the point where uh, the re reality seems to be kind of blurred based on mm -hmm. any kind of personal triumphs or tragedies that may have befallen upon us. So it, it may, it, it, that's why you can take like one actual piece of history and you know, take, take these, these, uh, these two people in particular being Ollie and Charlie and how they just are approaching it from complete opposite sides. And, uh, yeah, there, there lies Ollie your conflict. The grandson, he missed it. He wasn't there for whatever was great. He was born decades after it. Right. And so he is just pissed. Right. And his father has committed suicide because his father couldn't live up to, you know, the Sway family name. Right. Um, and he's fearing that he's going to follow the same fate. Um, and, um, but that, you know, his relationship with the past is not so different from his grandmother to, you know, his, sort of la-di-da about it at the beginning and, you know, everything was great back then. And, and it's for both shit of them now. have the same problem. <laughs> yeah. They're just manifesting it in different ways. And yeah. the Russian as well, because, you know, he's idealizing some past that he also missed. Right. How, okay, so um, now this movie is in the film festival circuit. How long has it been uh, on the circuit? A um, couple months. Uh, we got seven festivals in October. Um, Four opening nights, which is amazing, which means that, you know, the festival selected it and put it front and center. So that's great. We'll be near you in uh, Tucson uh, next week. So that's cool. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a process getting an independent film out there. Um, it's a bit, I think, like basket weaving now. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, it doesn't have a huge um, value in the culture or the culture doesn't think it has value. So it's tough. You know, there are a lot of really, really great movies getting made. Um, and when I go to festivals, I see other people's movies and I'm just blown away by how much talent there is out there. Yeah. Um, and it's a challenge to get the film out. So, you know, having people like you who take an interest in independent film is, is beautiful and, um, you know, helping drive people to, you know, my social media, my website, all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, I have a mailing list now that it's great that I can tell people about my work because I don't have the advertising budget to, right. you know, splash it onto billboards. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping we'll get released in some form. Um, but it's really important that people who care about this kind of uh, storytelling, um, 
you know, reach out to the artists and make contact because uh, otherwise you just don't want to know it's there and you'll turn on the TV and you'll see, um, you know, what's being put out there and you say, oh, movies suck. Yeah, but they don't. <laughs> no. Right. We we have become huge independent filmmaker or independent creator supporters, and we we it's just we as you said, there's a lot of talent out there that people don't get the big money, and that we're always looking for people that we can talk to and help them get their name out there and get their product out there to to look at. And we appreciate you talking to us and. Uh, how, how yeah so okay so um i guess finally uh how can people learn more about you and any future projects that you may have coming down the road the easiest way is my website regoldfilms.com um i uh, have my previous films all available there uh this one uh the song of sway lake just has the trailer there but um People can join my mailing list. They can follow me on the usual suspects. Um, I'm Ari Gold at um, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and all, but all of that is at AriGoldFilms.com. So if anyone goes there, you can say hello. You can join my mailing list. You can write me an email. Um, I'm doing a new interview series that I've just started putting up a couple days ago. With I started with the dude from the Big Lebowski, like the actual dude it was based on, and. Um, comedians and uh, musicians that I know. Um, so I'm going to be doing stuff that I basically put up on the website and, uh, you know, putting the work, at the, the smaller work out that way as I attempt to get the bigger work like this, this film into the world in a uh, somewhat more professional way. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's, that's the, the best way. AriGoldFilms.com. Should I say it again? Yeah. <laughs> you just Remember did. the films part. And yes. by the way, the, if anyone out there is an Entourage fan and they're wondering what is going on with Ari Gold talking to them, go to AriGold.net. Not.com, dot .net. I see. And that is my reaction to Entourage. And I explain the Entourage story <laughs> and I why say. my name is used in the show. Huh? Okay, then. All right. Well, yeah. thank you, Ari Gold, for being with us on the show this time. Yeah, it, was, it was wonderful being able to talk to you and about your movie. Wonderful talking to you guys as well. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, I'm Patricia Chica, director-producer of Morning After. And I'm Christian Hotko, writer and actor of Morning After. And you're listening to the Two Gay Geeks podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And that's our birthday music. And here's a few selected birthdays for October the 2th through October 8th, 2017. October 2th. <laughs> Very good. The tooth. The tooth. Remember the tooth. <laughs> October the 2th, the 2nd, Gordon Sumner. Now, are you trying to trip me up because that's Sting? Oh, yes. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> yeah. Also known as Sting. Of the and police. Interesting little thing. The reason he got that name is he used to wear a, a sweater or a jumper as they, that looked like a bumblebee. It looked like a bumblebee. So, yeah. So, they, they called him Sting <laughs> and it kind of stuck. Yeah. yeah. It stuck. It okay. stuck. Yeah, it stuck. Stinged him. Stung him. St anyway, moving it on. It stuck. It stuck. Also on October the 2nd. Annie Leibovitz, famed photographer. Yes. Oh, my. <laughs> also, Avery Brooks, 
and Groucho Marx, 1890. Wonderful. How about that? Yes, yeah. yes. Also, Richard the Third, born in 1452. And is your performance of Richard the uh, Third amazing? Uh, well, I'm not sure where you're going with this. No. Well, that was Alexander in uh, Galaxy Quest. Oh my God, that's right. I did Richard the Third. I had five encores. <laughs> I was an actor once. <laughs> I was an actor once. Now look at me. Look at me. <laughs> also on October second, Mahatma Gandhi, eighteen sixty-nine. October third, Lindsay Buckingham, oh, Fleetwood Mac, of Fleetwood Mac, and Dennis Villeneuve, who is the director of the new, um, uh, um, um. Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, God. My brain went uh, soft there for yes, a moment. Yes, which we will be seeing <laughs> this on Friday, yes. Uh, actually, or Thursday. Thursday. We'll, we'll be seeing Thursday, it Thursday yeah. night. And it's going to be a busy weekend it's again. It's going to be a very busy weekend. And then again. F- again. <laughs> well, I thought we weren't having any more busy weekends <laughs> for the rest either. of the year. I didn't either, but apparently What's going we on? are. <laughs> wow. October 3rd also is Lena Haiti, who has uh, done a number of different things as uh most importantly, Game of Thrones right now. Oh, yeah. So, She's really hot there. Yeah. October 4th, Jackie Collins, famed author, mm-hmm. and Anne Rice, who gave us the Sparkly Vampires. No, she did not. <laughs> oh, that was that wasn't Anne Rice? That was not Anne. No, no, she did not give us Sparkly Vampires. She gave us a blonde Tom Cruise. Oh, that's right. Well, that, actually, she that, didn't. She, well, anyway. She, it wasn't her, although she did like Tom Cruise as Lestat. Yes. Uh, October 4th, also, Susan Sarandon. Who gave us, damn it, Janet. Damn it, Janet. October 5th, Karen Allen of the... Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. As well as uh, Starman, probably one of the best John Carpenter sci-fi films ever. Yeah. Also, October 5th, Jeff Conaway. Interesting that I'm right now going through a big Babylon 5 uh, uh, binge watching right now. Yeah. So it's and he just he, uh, his character just appeared in the show, so yeah, perfect timing. That? Yeah. Also, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's Corporation. Also, Guy Pierce, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Clive Barker, and Robert Goddard, the father of, of spaceflight. Well, the the rocket, like yes, you know. or well, yeah. October sixth, Janet Gaynor was born in nineteen oh six. She was the original The Star is Born. Ah, yes. that was with James Mason, if I'm not uh, no, mistaken. No, it was... Uh, no, no, that Frederick was Judy March. Garland. Yeah. Judy Garland was with James Mason. Who did she work yeah. with then? Frederick March. Okay. Also on October 6th, another uh, Hollywood legend, Carol Lombard. And also Ian Gr- Yoan Grufford. Yoan Grufford. Yes. And also October 6th, Wenceslas III of Bohemia... He was the king. Now, wasn't there a song written about him by Queen? <laughs> oh, no, a different what? song. <laughs> what? Queen doing a song about good King Wenceslas? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I got confused. Somehow I, I ju- got confused. Wow, my, that, just, that just gave me a stroke. <laughs> it, oh, it was good King Wenceslas. It wasn't Bohemian Rhapsody. Sorry uh, about no. That. <laughs> Okay. Somehow I just don't think Wenceslas <laughs> is walking up and down the string saying, Mama, I just killed a man. October 7th, Simon Cowell. Yo, yo, Ma. Jeez. <laughs> I just tickled myself. And Nils Bohr. October 8th, 
Sigourney Weaver. Oh, it's Sigourney Weaver. It's Sigour- <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. I'm Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> yes, from Finding, from Dory. Finding Dory. Yeah. Also on October 8th, Chevy Chase and Matt Damon. And that's it for the birthdays uh, this time. Mark your calendars and plan to attend PIY 2017. PIY is the Podcast It Yourself workshop, and it's happening in Phoenix, Arizona, October 28, 2017. This interactive workshop is being held for people who want to start a podcast or want to learn more about podcasting from experienced and respected podcasters. Learn about software, hardware, accessories, best practices, and more. And of course, we've got prize drawings to make podcasters weak in the knees. The workshop coincides with the long-awaited release of Podcasting for Dummies 3rd Edition. Authors T. Morris and Chuck Tomasi will be at DIY to answer questions and sign books. Oh, and it also happens to be T's birthday, so come help him celebrate after the workshop is done. You do not want to miss this event. Spaces are limited. Go to podcastingfordummies.com and sign up for PIY 2017. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Podcastingfordummies.com and PIY 2017. Go. Now. Go check it out at uh, podcastingfordummies.com. We're, we're going to be there. We're going to be there. So I guess that means that we're, we're experienced podcasters. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, you've been doing this for, uh, for so many a years few, now. Yeah, I, years, I, I yeah. think we're, I th- I'd like to think we are. Yeah, we're veterans anyway. Let's put it that way. Yeah. The uh, sign up, it's only $20 until October 10th, and then it goes up to $30. So act now. And now. We're going to have some feedback this week. Yeah, so we didn't have any last week. Yeah. So, feedback palooza of sorts. Of a sorts. So, starting uh, back with episode 135, and this one tickled me. It's a simple little comment. It's from good friend Hamish Downey, and he simply wrote, can't wait to hear the new episode. And the only reason I put that in is it just tickles me that he's so excited every time we put out a new episode. I, I thought that was just yeah. adorable. That's cute. Thanks, Hamish. Yes. And then uh, another one from Silver Screen Analysis, who simply writes, great show, guys. And for anybody who does not know who the Silver Screen Analysis is. It's Anthony DeJoya. Right. We met him. At uh, Pod- yeah, uh, Horrible Imaginings. Horrible Imaginings <laughs> Film Festival. That's right. Yeah. And then we got a comment from uh, Brian Weber, Arkle. And he simply wrote this. CBS has been making blunder after blunder in recent years, even to exclude how they've been mishandling Star Trek Discovery and their new streaming service. I'm convinced at this point that even if Discovery turns out great, it's still going to fail because of the network. Keep in mind, this is a network that, when confronted with the fact that literally every new show they'd announced for the 2016-2017 season had a white, straight, male lead, they held up Discovery as an example of diversity, even though the show wasn't going to be coming out for another year and was being put behind a paywall. CBS just doesn't get it. Remember the kerfuffle earlier this year over them from firing Daniel Day, Kim, and Grace Park off Hawaii Five O? I guess they really needed the money for that Big Bang Theory prequel that I'm sure will be just as respectful of women, people of color, and the neurodivergent as the original series is. 
That was from Brian. Of course, I think we all know that when Discovery fails because of the paywall and the PR blunders, CBS will turn around and blame the failure on diversity. And it'll be another 20 years before the network decides to try a series with a black female lead again, because that's how things always work. Now, I got a comment. That actually worries me. Exactly. That I never even looked at this from a social political standpoint. I we, we just simply talked that maybe from an artistic standpoint, that's why this series is being set up the way it is. But from a pol- social political one, youch. Scary thought. Thank you for bringing that up, Brian. And then I ran an article uh, a couple of weeks ago that talked about how there were not going to be any early reviews for Star Trek Discovery. And we got a comment from Mark Ross, and he simply wrote, very concerning. Yes. And then going back to episode 130, oh, 136, we had a happy birthday for Kenny Rotter, and he simply writes, thanks for the birthday love, made my day. And then we had a review that we ran for the new Kingsman movie, and we got two comments. And I love this. This is from a husband and wife. First, from Duncan Richoff, and he writes, like the review, but disagree with it a bit. I think it fell into a sequel trap and overdid it. Tequila is wasted and merely set up to be used in the next planned movie. Fans of the first one will likely enjoy it, but I was a bit underwhelmed. 3.5 stars. His wife, on the other hand, she writes, I decidedly agree on a couple of elements. I loved how they incorporated Harry's resurrection, and it was well done. Channing Tatum was very underused, which is a shame because I liked what I saw. I did think the script was a bit of a rehash of the first movie, and some of the violence went a bit too far for me. I love that Eggsy was with Princess Tildy, and she wasn't just a one-off like in the old spy movies. That twist was the best. And we're going to be talking about that movie in a little bit. And then lastly, we ran an article about a new talk show that's going to be on CBS streaming called After Trek, and it will be airing after Trek. Think about it. And we got and the comment from Arkel came in. I just do, just do not understand why this is a thing. Talking Dead? After Trek? Some of the other ones I'm forgetting because I never watched them, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, are networks really that starved for content that they have to have a show about the show you just watched to fill a half hour? Was there ever a demand for this? Or is it just because these after shows are probably cheap to produce? Oh, I think I just answered my own question there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... uh you had that comment from Andrea and I, it just reminded me that, and I forgot to put this in the birth. I, I'm really falling down on this. Oh my word. Well, I've, you, you just came back from a trip. So yeah. you're, you're kind of out of it. And I'm going on one tomorrow. Um, I forgot to put on the, uh, website again, two birthdays. Oh no. And I forgot to put them in the, um, in the episode, in the, the birthdays the here Oops. in the script. Tomorrow, actually on Sunday, October 1st, which is the, Tomorrow, as we're recording this episode, and yesterday, if, uh, if you're listening publishing to it, uh, this episode, right. was uh, good friend Jeff George. Oh, yes. And Andrea Richoff. Okay. Both have birthdays. Well, so happy birthday, Jeff, and happy birthday, Andrea. Belated birthdays, yes. We're happy birthday early from us as we record, and belated if you're... Right. That was so (laughs) timey-wimey. It was. Anyway, about our comments and our feedback, we want to hear from you, our listeners, whether it's good, bad, indifferent. Let us know what you think about our articles, our episodes, anything that we publish on the website. And you can comment on the website, on the article, on a 
the uh, episode article with the show notes. You can comment on Facebook. You can comment on Twitter or on our YouTube episodes. Or you can call our listener feedback line, 469-TG-Geeks. That is 469-844-3357. And remember, please play nice. Mmm, the force is strong with the two gay geeks webcast. <laughs> Okay, we got just a couple of minutes left, so let's fly through this last bit. We had the pleasure of seeing uh, the Kingsman, the Golden Circle, uh, and got a review uh, already published on our website. We'll have the link for that in our show notes. So if you want to know what I thought about it, just read the review. I will say that I enjoyed the movie thoroughly, and there were one or two moments that just absolutely had me in hysterics. But what what was your take on that? I, I liked it. I, I thought it was good. We also have a review from... Yeah, we have uh, another review that's out there from, from Roe. On Kingsman, Golden Circle. Right, so. She gave it a B plus. Now, we're not, I'm not going to go over through her review, but if you want to know what, what she liked and what she didn't like about it, check it out. She did say, however, that she's really become a big fan of Mark Strong, and he played the character Merlin. Yeah. She, she's like, she's really behind him now, and so am I. After, yeah. after this movie, I mean, hearing him sing Country Roads, okay, yeah. you know, that that was it. I, I'm in. And this this is a kind of a special thing that we're, we were really trying to go for with having additional contributors that uh, we can all or yeah, you and, and exactly. several of our contributors can all write reviews on a on the same subject, same subject, and see get, get multiple viewpoints. Exactly. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, she, it's, it seems like Be she syndicated. liked it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it seems like she liked the liked it a little less than I did, and that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's nice to get other points of view. So Everybody I was really likes happy. Different things. I was happy that she was able to write a review for that. And speaking of that, she has contributed. Three other reviews, in addition to Kingsman, The Golden Circle, she wrote a review for American Assassin, which just came out, the new Tom Cruise movie. So if you really want to know what that's all about, take a look at her review there. She also has a review for the Lego Ninjago movie, as well as the latest social media horror film, Friend Request. So check those out. Now, we had uh, just had a feedback a little while ago from Andrea Richoff. She is also to be a contributor for our lovely little TG Geeks website. And she has just submitted a review for Victoria and Abdul. We'll be publishing that really, really soon. So thank you, Andrea, for joining the, the writing cast yeah. for this website. Yeah. And uh, lastly, for anybody who really wants to know what we think about Star Trek Discovery, well, as you know, only two episodes have been uh, aired so far we are going to wait until episode three usually we give it uh give it like a three episode sniff test to see if it's uh, worth sticking around with so we're going to wait until after the new episode airs this coming well it'll be last okay. night yeah. last night by the time you hear this episode yeah, exactly so we will be withholding any reviews slash discussion until next week yes and as always we have our Follow-up items, check out our calendar on the website. It, uh, one of these days it will get updated. If you have a film festival or a con or a birthday, let us know. Send us a note. We'll put it on the calendar. Also, Phoenix Comic-Con Fan Fest returns to Phoenix on November 11th and 12th, 2017. Quite a few guests have been announced, including Ernie Hudson, Kevin McNally, several Steven Universe cast members, and four of the cast from Willy Wonka, the original, Charlie, Veruca, Violet, and Mike TV. 
as well as comic book artists and wrestlers. So, Are there wrestlers? I mean, again, this year? I didn't, yeah, I didn't even see few. that on the list. A couple. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so check out myfanfest.com for more info. And then, of course, Phoenix Comic Con, regular Phoenix Comic Con, returns to the convention center on May 24th through the 27th, 2018. They'll have more info, certainly, after FanFest completes. Tucson Film Festival runs from October 5th through October the 8th. Tickets are still available for all nights. Check out the lineup of films at TucsonFilmFest.com and check out their Facebook page, Tucson Film Festival. And Song of Sway Lake will be presented on Friday, October 6th. Which means we'll be there. We'll be there, exactly. Arizona Opera presents a not-to-be-missed opportunity, Hercules vs. the Vampires, a new hybrid film and live with live music. And uh, the 1961 Mario Bava film, Hercules in the Underworld. And it's uh, the music is composed by Patrick Morganelli, and he's set the uh, dialogue to music. So it should be a wild ride. Check out. There's several uh, special events pr- planned prior to the performance of Hercules vs. the Vampire. So stay tuned for more and check out Arizona Opera at azopera.org. Is there a date for that? Uh, that is the October 22nd, I believe, is when it is. Okay. Podcast it yourself. PIY October 28th. Sign up now before the price goes up. Come see us and say hi. We'll be at the following events. Tucson Film Festival, Friday, October 6th. The PIY Podcast It Yourself, October 28th. And Phoenix Comic Con Fan Fest in uh, November 11th to 12th. As well as uh, the the, the uh, Opera Fest. Yes, the Opera. We'll be there. Exactly. Well. And everybody knows, as we have just talked to an independent film creator, we are huge supporters of independent creators, filmmakers, comic book artists, writers, any th- type of independent creation. We are supporters of that. We found that there's a lot of talent out there that doesn't get the big money or fame. So if you see a crowdfunding campaign going for something, please consider supporting it. You can usually get in for as little as a dollar. You never know. You might be part of something big. So please consider supporting independent creators. Special shout out to Doctor Who Talking Who on Twitter. They are at Talking Who, and we bring them up because they publish the Doctor Who Fancast Guide that constantly recirculates our stories, and we love them for that. Also, you've heard uh, some feedback from Brian Weber, Arkle. He's the human Arkle on Twitter, and he publishes the Arkle Times Post-Dispatch News that also republishes our stories, and you can find him and the Post-Dispatch News on Twitter. The handle is at Arkle. He's also on Tumblr. You've heard us talk about it. I highly recommend checking it out. The incorrect Star Trek Voyager quotes, they are terribly amusing, especially, and, and head-scratching. It's like, where the heck did they come up with that? <laughs> exactly. So check that out when you have a chance. And we want to give a shout-out to The Lookie Show, the twins, on Twitter. They are at Lookie Show. They give us a lot of love there. And you need, need to check out their YouTube channel. It's the best. Lookie Show. It is the it best. It is the best. They have a rather unique way of doing movie reviews and TV show reviews as well as other things. So and check I would it out. Re- I would recommend if you're going to go to their YouTube channel, carve out several hours in your day. Yeah. Because that is one enjoyable rabbit hole you're going to go down. Yeah, they have a lot of good stuff. Another great shout out to the Facebook group, The Gay Geek. This is an awesome page because they have awesome content with awesome people there. 
And I know I say that every week, but it is I say it because it it's true. absolutely true. I really do love that page it's a lot. True, it's true. It's true. And uh, we have to give special thanks to their moderator, Jeremiah Reeves, for giving us permission to post our episodes there and sometimes even uh, specially related content in terms of articles. And you can find that group by going to facebook.com slash groups slash the gay geek. Thanks, Jeremiah. We want to remind you to occasionally click on our Amazon ads. We've got ads at the bottom of each article and widgets on the side. It doesn't cost anything for you to click on them. It tells Amazon that we're getting some traffic to them. Also, if you do choose to buy something, check out one of our search ads and buy it through that. We get a little bit of a kickback, so thanks for your consideration. And lastly, check us out on iHeartRadio, and please rate us and review us on iTunes. And please, please, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and catch our episodes there. Um, it helps us out with the YouTube channel. I have no clue what we will have next well, time. Well, <laughs> we are going to be at the festival Friday night. So we might have something. We might have something from yeah, there. That's you never right, know. Because, uh, we uh, know yeah. that, that Ari's brother is going to be Ethan there. there oh, oh so. no. Yeah. Yeah. Ethan's going to be there. Yeah. So, and he, and as we heard, he, he's the composer for the music of Sway Lake. Yeah. And I would very much like to talk to him. Yeah. We might get a little shorty interview with yeah. them, both or of them. Maybe yeah. both of them even. Sounds good. Okay, that should do it for this episode of TG Geeks Webcast. Be sure to check out our article for this webcast episode. We will have several links on the page, and remember you can comment on our Facebook page or our website, tggeeks.com, or you can leave a voicemail at 469-TG-GEEKS. That is 469-844-3357. From TG Squared Studios, I am Keith Lane. Thanks for listening. I bid you peace. Cheers. <laughs>